Sunday afternoon, and I don't know if you've ever done any public speaking, it's really good to have a joke up your sleeve, to be funny, at least to get people to think you're funny. Um, that's the goal, and so they like you, and you can carry on from there. So I was thinking, you know, I, I'm not really that funny. I might smell funny, <laughs> I might look funny, but I had a construction joke I could share, uh, but it turns out I'm still working on it, so. Um, good. Did everybody get that? Okay. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so in, in preparation for the word of the Lord this morning, I'm, I've asked Kevin Drieger to come up and read for us our passage, and it is out of Ephesians chapters 2, so he's going to do that. Uh, please stand for the reading of the word. Please remain standing, actually, as we just pray um, before we get into this. Father, we come to you thanking you that you are here present among us, that you want to speak to us. We ask for your spirit to come and do a work that we cannot do on our own. Without you, we are just a bunch of people in a room trying to look religious. And God, we don't want that. We want uh, the living word. We want what you have for us today. So I ask that you would open our hearts to your power, to your presence, to everything that you've offered us in Jesus Christ. We say we are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, and you promise that those who are will be filled. And so we ask now for an infilling of your spirit to come and transform us as we encounter you and your word that we might be uh, light to this world. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done in each heart in this room. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done in this church. We pray your will be done in this city. God, have your way among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, you may sit. I know that Jeff has been going through uh, the Ephesians with you and giving you a lot of background. Uh, and so I want to do something a little bit different and just start with the big picture and take us all the way back to the very beginning of the gospel story and all the way to the future uh, of what God, is, his plan of redemption entails in the end of time. And so I'm going to try to do all of that and hone in on this passage at the same time. So we have a lot in for us today. Um, and if it's too much and too fast, maybe uh, you could just jump in the lake afterwards and re refresh and cool down. Um, but this passage is very much about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news that Jesus came to bring humanity. And I wonder if you've ever thought about how to summarize the gospel. If you've had opportunities, maybe, uh, with people in your life to talk about the gospel, and you've, you've had to think about, okay, how, well, how, well, now how do I put this in words? You know, I go to church a lot, and I think about this, I pray a lot, I read the Bible a lot. How do I put this in words? And so, I want to say salvation didn't just start with Jesus. I'm going to go all the way back to kind of summarize the big picture, if you will. And so, what I'm going to start with is the history of salvation, and then we'll move on. Uh, and more hone in on this passage and talk about the nature of salvation and then finally the church and salvation. And so in the beginning, God creates out of love everything that you see. And he created humanity to be in relationship with him. But wanting to rule our own hearts, we rejected God, the source of life and the source of our connection to him. We rejected him as our king and as our leader. And so as soon as that happened, the Bible comes with a promise. The moment mankind severed their connection with God, God comes in and promises them. In Genesis 3.15, uh, he promises them, uh, this is what God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And theologians call that the proto-evangelium. That's Latin for first gospel. This is like the first seedling, the first 
instance of the gospel we see in the Bible that as soon as that connection was severed, God comes in and he has got a plan to redeem us back to himself. And so God's promise is to bring about the destruction of the serpent through the offspring of Eve. And Paul actually picks up on this at the end of the book of Romans. Paul says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise to Eve, that Satan will be crushed. And so we move on to that next stage of God's plan of unfolding redemption for humanity. And, 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 and God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to use you and your family to bless the whole world. And here's the passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing out, but look at the end. It says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So again, God is unfolding his plan to redeem people back to relationship with himself. And we move on in the story, and Abraham's family becomes great and big and ends up as slaves in the land of Egypt for 430 years. And God raised up a deliverer named Moses. And God comes to Moses, and he makes a promise with Moses, again, redeeming his people. And he says, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And of course, we know that Peter picks up on that. And the next phase of God's plan of redemption to bring his people back to himself, we can see God promises to King David. And he says in 2 Samuel 7:16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And Jesus' resurrection proved that, proves that his, he reigns forever as a king in the line of his ancestor, David. And so all along the Old Testament, we see God actually from the very beginning of that severed relationship had a plan to bring us back into relationship with himself. And so here's this quick summary, if you will, of coming to this point where Paul is now in Ephesus as in, as, and he's encountered the risen Lord and telling the Ephesian people who are a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles there, but there's a lot of Gentiles there, and he's telling them, look, God has been uh, doing things all along, but now in Jesus, something new has happened. There's a new covenant. There's a new access to God. And so now we're going to start honing in on this passage. And so we've seen how God had a plan and he used the Israelites. He had special revelation given to the Israelites. They had the Torah. They had the, the, the sacrificial system that they would use uh, to access God. And the Jews, they considered the Gentiles to be inferior. They didn't have, the, the Gentiles didn't have this access to God. And so it said that they wouldn't even help a Gentile mother who was giving birth because that would mean bringing another heathen into the world. And so there was this really big rift between Jews and Gentiles. And a lot of the Jews, they were blinded to what God wanted to do. Remember in Abraham's promise, it said that God was going to use Abraham to bless the whole world. And many of the Jews had forgotten this or, or didn't recognize God's plan was from the beginning to bless the whole world. Um, and so we go now to Ephesians, and let's just read that passage again, the first part of it. In Ephesians uh, 2, 11 to 16, it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called to uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And so right away we can see that this passage takes on a very distinct pattern and it follows this. Once in the past you were like this, now you are like this. And Paul here is speaking specifically to the Gentiles. And he says what is called the uncircumcised and by what is called the circumcised. And by referring to it this way, Paul is actually demoting this category of speaking. He's saying, we don't need to refer to people as, well, what is called the circumcised or what people call the uncircumcised, to those categories that have been set up by the old covenant. Those don't need to exist anymore because of what Christ has done. So there were insiders in, in the Jewish mindset and there were outsiders to the covenants of promise. If you didn't have uh, the, the blood of Abraham, if you didn't have the Torah, you were an outsider to accessing God. So there was this barrier. But in this new covenant, Christ has nullified any pre-existing barriers. And this passage talks about at least three ways where the Gentiles were outsiders in terms of accessing God. And F.F. Bruce is a a biblical scholar, and he puts it like this. He says, they lack the ancient sign of the covenant and family links. So the ancient sign of the covenant probably being circumcision, that external sign, and family links with the promised Messiah. So those outsiders and Gentiles, they weren't children of Abraham. Politically, they had no part in Israel's national or religious life. Again, the, the, the Torah wasn't theirs. Spiritually, they had no prospect or knowledge of the true God. They weren't given any specific revelation. I think everybody had general revelation uh, of God, but there was no specific revelation. So these are the ways in which uh, the Gentiles were cut off to accessing God. And so the fact of the matter is, in that old covenant, the, the Gentiles had tremendous barriers to accessing God. And for example, Uh, a a Gentile could become a Jew by going through this long process uh, of converting to Judaism where as an adult they would have to uh, experience circumcision as a sign of the of the covenant promise and uh, so they had to go through all of these things but this mystery that Paul talks about so often in this letter if, you, if you've been reading along, um, the letter talks about mystery quite a bit. And, and Paul actually gives the definition for mystery in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. And he says that the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, and members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery is that Jew and Gentile are now one. This is what the whole thing has been coming to, God's plan right from the beginning to save humanity through the seed of Eve. And so we can ask, why? Why is it all about this mystery of Jew and Gentile coming together? Jesus is the fulfillment, like I just said, of the promise to Eve that he will crush Satan. Jesus is the fulfillment to the promise to Abraham that through his family, the whole world will be blessed. And that is, we see, we see that happening through Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise God made to Israel at Mount Sinai that we will be a royal priesthood and a holy nation and all those who accept Jesus as king are part of his kingdom. And finally, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to King David that in Jesus, now he reigns forever in the line of David. So there is now no law, there is now no commandment, there is now no race, no slave, no free, or no slave or free, uh, there's no bank account difference, there's no status difference, there's, there's no kind of difference that could possibly exclude someone from this universal invitation into accessing God through Jesus Christ. Um, And so just this invitation is open to all. As in Adam, all have sinned, so in Christ, all are made alive. It's a universal salvation through a singular means, through the means of Jesus Christ. And so this is why there's no outsiders and insiders anymore. 
those categories of circumcised and uncircumcised have been demolished. And Paul says in uh, Colossians 2.7, he actually says that Christ performs the circumcision of the heart now. So that external sign, those outward barriers are actually turned inside and God does something in our hearts that help us to access him. And so these new, the new category that's set up is that we can all be part of the household of God. We can all be his subjects, all his princes and princesses, his citizens, and even his shrine, if you will, or his temple. It says that as well in this passage, where the presence of God dwells. And so this passage is specifically about the unity of Jews and Gentiles now in Jesus, but it's important for us to recognize because most of us here are Gentiles by birth, but we're saints by promise. And so it's important for us to recognize the biggest discord or disunity or disruption between us and access to God is actually the fall. Um, we're not too concerned about the old covenant barriers. Christ has demolished those, but the fall has impacted our relationship with God. And so we're going to move to our next point, which is the nature of salvation. And if we're talking about the nature of salvation, we also should talk about the nature of the fall. And so the fall or sin and brokenness is where we have cut ourselves off from the source of all life and goodness. We've cut ourselves off from the creator. And we rejected transcendent help and we take our own path. This means that we use our own resources to fix our own problems. In one word, we could say that we are independent. Independent in every way. And so because humanity was given charge and stewardship over all of creation, when we became independent, that disconnection between us and God also affected all of creation. So obviously that vertical dimension between us and God has been severed, but also the horizontal connection between us and other human beings has been disrupted. And the connection between us and creation and our environment and even our own bodies has been disrupted. So that um, nobody has a perfect relationship with their own body. Uh, we experience uh, this disconnect in our body, whether it's same-sex attraction or transgender uh, type, type ideas or whether it's just autoimmune diseases um, whether it's even just lusting after um, a, an opposite-sex person. Um, some people have this thing called apotemnophilia, which is a desire to cut off a healthy part of your body, a healthy limb, in order to feel complete. There are all kinds of uh, uh, different ways where we experience this disconnect with our own bodies. And so sin has affected every dimension of our existence. And so with this in mind, we can now turn to the nature of salvation. And I think the Christian concept of salvation is better understood by the word rescue. Because a lot of different religious thoughts or philosophical systems or worldview beliefs, they talk about salvation too. And they talk about it in these terms. They say, if you believe these things, if you believe these propositions, or if you experience this feeling, or if you do these actions, then you will experience salvation. You will achieve salvation, or moksha, or nirvana, or paradise, or, or whatever it is. Each system teaches either you have to do, think, or feel one of these things, or a combination thereof, and then you achieve salvation. And in that way, you are the hero of your own story. But Christian salvation is not like that. Christian salvation, I think it requires two, two things. Uh, and picture with me for a moment, a, a child in the middle of a, a huge body of water drowning. That child is there. Two things, they cannot save themselves. They have an inability to save themselves. And they need outside help. They need a transcendent rescuer. And this is the concept of Christian salvation. 
All of humanity is drowning in disconnection from the source of life. And we are heading for extinction unless we're willing to humbly admit our predicament and say yes to a transcendent rescuer. So listen, listen carefully to this. If the gospel is going to be effective at all, it must at least be as big as the fall. If the fall has affected every dimension of our existence, so too must your gospel affect every dimension of existence. And this whole word, this whole passage is hanging on this one word. I think, in my opinion, the one word that sums up what this passage is talking about is the word access. This Greek word access has a special meaning that we might not pick up on if, if we didn't expound it a bit. And so in this text, the word access is talking about uh, VIP access, access backstage to a, a very important person, a famous person. In this passage, specifically talking about royalty. So let's read this section one more time, Ephesians 2.18. And following it says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in who the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so this first part, through Jesus, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access to royalty Paul switches it here because it's talking specifically about royalty, but he switches it to a father. And so this is the access that um, Paul is talking about that is so important to understand. Uh, so I want to use an analogy to illustrate it. Um, Cheryl, my wife, and I were in the UK this last year, and um, I don't know if you know, there was a royal wedding, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, they got married, um, I think it was May, I'm not sure, a few months ago. My wife, Cheryl, had the opportunity to go um, be with the crowds of people watching the wedding take place. Uh, and so you can see the chariot. She's literally a few feet in front of all these barriers, and the chariots and all the horses go by, and there they are, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry sitting in the chariot, and they go by, and they're going right into Windsor Castle and to the chapel there. And they, they're getting married, and, and she's with all the crowds of people watching. Now, imagine for a second if Prince Harry himself came down, past the barriers, past the security, and went down and grabbed Cheryl by the hand and said, Cheryl, I want you to come into the wedding and, and actually sit right here, sit down beside the queen. You can sit here. This would be tremendous VIP access, would it not? Cheryl getting to go right in there to, to, to be among the royal family watching the wedding take place. But what if it was much more than that? She gets chatting with the queen and says, the queen says to Cheryl, you know what, I'd like you to, to experience all the benefits, not just to be here and have this and, and see the wedding, but experience the benefits of a UK citizen and, and actually experience the wedding as, 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 a, as an English person. So right there, the queen confers upon Cheryl British citizenship. And then it goes further and she says, you know what, <laughs> you haven't done anything to deserve this, but I want to adopt you into my family. And uh, so right there, the queen legally does all this stuff and Cheryl becomes part of the household of the queen. And then she says, now I'd like to invite you to live with me in Buckingham Palace and become part of the very fabric of where the queen resides. And the analogy starts to break down, but the point is, this is the kind of access through Jesus that we get into the courts of heaven. Jesus has come down, taken humanity by the hand, and led us right into the presence of the king of kings. Is that not cool? And just like maybe, you know, the, 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 the higher you are, the more, um, 
you know, famous you are, the more uh, barriers there are going to be to accessing the famous person, the more security, the more uh, channels you'll have to go through. So a child can't just walk into the president's office, can they? They would, they would get stopped at security. If you tried to go in, you'd probably get shot. But here's a picture of President JFK and his son under the desk in the Oval Office. This child can walk right into the Oval Office, into the presence of the president, because he's the child of the president. You and me are children of the king of the universe. And Jesus has brought us right into his office, right into his presence. And so, brothers and sisters, when we talk about this kind of rescue and this kind of access, we did not achieve this. We are not the hero of our own stories. Jesus is the hero of this story. And so when Christians talk about forgiveness and reconciliation and peace and justice and unity, the, the beautiful things that this passage is talking about, those are actually symptoms of this access. Those are just the benefits that ensue from the access we gain into the courts of heaven. It's all about the access, and without that, we would have none of it. This is the benefit package that comes with it. The real core of this calling is the access. Once access is benefited in Jesus, or sorry, once access is granted in Jesus, the benefits ensue. And so the benefits aren't to be sought for the sake of themselves, and they aren't to be sought in place of the benefactor. All the rich beauty of intimacy and life flow is unlocked when we get access to the kingly presence and to the family of God. And so we see Jesus is not just the door, he's the hinge that the whole door swings on that opens up all the blessing in the heavenly places. Is all yours. So Jesus is everything, such that without him, we're all drowning in stories where we're trying to be the hero, but we can't quite make it. And so notice the Trinitarian way as well that this verse is told. It says that we have, Jesus has given us access to God the Father. It's through Jesus the Son by the Holy Spirit. And so access to the Father is not given in any other way than through Jesus. It's a universal salvation through a singular means. Um, and, and access through Jesus, so access to the Father any other way than through Jesus would just be religion. You'd just be trying to get to God without Jesus without going through him, without him leading you by the hand, is just religion emptied of, its own, of, of any power. It's you just trying to get there on your own, on your own steam, on your own effort. And so the Trinitarian way this is told is important because also access through Jesus, but without the Spirit, means you won't be ready for it or you won't be able to understand it because the Spirit is the one who leads us into truth, who softens us, who helps us be able to respond to the Spirit of God. And so access to God must be both through Jesus because it's him who achieves it and by the Spirit because he readies us to uh, go into the presence of God and to receive what God has for us. He softens us. He transforms us. So without the Holy Spirit, there would be no transformation. So I want to move on to our final point, which is the church in salvation. So we've seen how through the history of salvation, God had a plan right from the beginning to redeem us back to himself. And that Jesus is the very core and the linchpin of salvation because he is humanity's transcendent rescuer. The crux of the story rests on Jesus. So, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, young and old, all of us come into the presence of the king. 
And we all experience the benefits of eternal and relational and increasing love forever. This is what Paul is trying to get across to the, Galatia, uh, to the Ephesian people, the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. These are the benefits he's trying to get us to realize come through Jesus. But we also recognize that because of this newfound unity in Jew and Gentile, amongst humanity that Jesus has created, there is also a new kind of community, a new kind of society, and we call that the church. And so new society where, again, all different kinds of people, Jew, rich, poor, all are one in Christ. All are brothers and sisters in the household of God, being built together, growing, and this text says, into a holy temple. In verse 22, in that Trinitarian, another Trinitarian statement, it says, in Jesus, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Excuse me. And so zooming out again, we've seen God's progressively unfolding plan of redemption for humanity to rescue us back to himself. We've seen the full gospel includes the full healing that the fall has disrupted. And we also see, uh, in jumping ahead a little bit, I hope whoever preaching next week forgives me, jumping ahead a little bit, Paul actually gives the reason why this has all happened. Again, in this unfolding scheme of God's plan for redeeming us, why this mystery of Jews and Gentiles united and Jesus bringing us access into heaven. Why? He says in Ephesians 3.10, he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Wow. What? Through the church? <laughs> yeah, we're not done yet. God still has a continuing plan right now for redeeming his people and it involves you and me. We are part of this plan, just like God promised to Eve, just like God promised to Abraham, he promised to Moses and the Israelites, he promised to David. He brought Jesus, Jesus the fulfillment of those things. We are now part of that plan for God to redeem humanity back to himself. It is our job to make God's wisdom known to the world. So. Maybe you've heard or been in those conversations or even asked yourself, when things are tough, when something wrong happens, where is God? Has anyone ever asked you that? Maybe you've asked yourself, I'm sure. Where is God? That's an ex existential question we all have to deal with in difficult moments in life. And I'm telling you right now, the Bible is very clear. This passage is very very clear. You and me, the church is the presence of God in the world right now. And so the church ought to be able to go, the presence of God, or sorry, the world ought to be able to look at the church and go, wow, the presence of God is there. Something is happening there. Something is going on there. There's a giving of themselves that goes beyond natural means. They're getting their resources from another place. It's not coming from themselves because I've tried and it didn't work. The Bible is very clear. We are his body. We are his temple. We are where the presence of God resides. So if someone is wondering, where is God? We either haven't been representing him very well, or you could take that opportunity to gently explain that God, maybe he's too big just to show up in your bedroom. He doesn't, you know, he's not physical. Like, how does that all work? Look, you go to your neighbor and you love your neighbor. That's how it works. That's how God's presence and his wisdom is made manifest in the world. And so the more your will is surrendered to God's will, the more you will embody his presence to other people. 
The more your will is surrendered to his will, the more you will embody his presence to other people. And I want to illustrate this with a little story um, from a book by Gerald Tolkien. He's the famous author of The Lord of the Rings. And he wrote this little autobiography uh, called Leaf by Niggle. That's what it's called, Leaf by Niggle. And in this story, it sets the backdrop of a very mundane, very boring existence of this guy named Niggle. And he's an artist. And so he goes about his life, and he has this grand idea of painting this masterpiece, and it's a big tree. And so he starts working on it, and he's working on the leaf, and he gets interruptions constantly by his neighbor and by other people in his life. And his neighbor is called Parrish, not incidentally. And so Parrish is an older gentleman who needs help doing odd jobs around the yard, and he, he's constantly going over to mow Parrish's lawn. And he's doing all of these little things. I know it wasn't too long ago Jeff was talking about how we think we need to do something grand for God. Niggle had this idea to do a grand painting, but it was these constant daily interruptions from his neighbor, neighbor Parrish. And so by the end of Niggle's life, he didn't have this masterpiece done. He didn't have any grand artwork to show. He had completed very detailed, very preciously, very painstakingly, but he had only completed one leaf, one leaf of the whole tree. And so the point is we we think we got to do all of these amazing things, you know, like Mother Teresa maybe, where she started the Sisters of Charity and now it's an international organization, all this stuff, and everybody knows about her. But it's the little interruptions by our neighbors, maybe, that are the places, the opportunities, where we can start to embody the love of God and the presence of God for other people in our lives. And so it was this process of Niggle's surrender. He surrendered his grand artwork. He surrendered his grand ideas and allowed himself to be constantly interrupted by his neighbor, Parrish. That allowed him to embody the presence of God on earth. And so in this context, I wonder if you've thought of, well, what, if we're talking about the church here and God's plan for salvation, what, what do what does the church really mean? What's the definition of the church? And fortunately, Paul actually provides the definition of the church in this chapter, in this book, in this letter. At the end of chapter one, he says, and God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to the church as head over all things. Now, what is the church? Now, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church and Christ is the fullness of him who fills all in all because the bride and the bridegroom together become one. We are in Christ. So the church isn't just the total sum of everybody that's been baptized. So if we put all the baptized people in the world into this room, that, that's not just, just that isn't the church. The church is where there's this their, their life is in communion together in the spirit. Uh, the, the church is actually a communion of churches, themselves made up of communions of persons, enriching one another through diversity. Because there are diversity of gifts, but one spirit. The church is actually the beginning and the vanguard of the kingdom of God guaranteeing the fullness of the kingdom of God to come. So you see how the church is actually this part of this crucial stage of God bringing about the redemption of humanity. Do you see how, how that's all fitting together? In Revelation eleven fifteen, it actually says this. It says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
So the church is supposed to be a blessing of the world, pointing to the kingdom that's going to become. This is the future, guys. The church is pointing to the future. It's testifying to Christ where he will reign. And so the church is a witness to Christ. The church is the inbreaking of the kingdom, but is not yet the kingdom. And so where Adam failed in his relationship with God, Eve failed in her relationship with God, Abraham failed in his relationship with God, Moses failed in his relationship, Israel failed in their relationship with God. Guess what? The church is going to succeed. Do you know why? Because we're in Christ, and Christ succeeded. He was the new Israel that brought about the fulfillment of all these promises that were to come. He is the Father's Son, perfectly obedient. The church is going to succeed because Christ has succeeded, and we are in him, as Ephesians tells us, 35 times. We are in him. We are in him. We are in him. We are in him. And so when you are baptized into the Trinity, your independent life died with Jesus, died with his death, and your new life and your new identity rose up with his resurrection. So when you're thinking about this passage, you're thinking about you are in him, your new identity is in Christ. I don't want you to picture just you and Christ because the picture is bigger than that. I want you to picture yourself as a member of Christ's body. Because now we are in Christ, we are part of his body, we are part of his bride, we are part of his plan of redemption, we are his presence in the world. We ourselves are pointing to the coming of the kingdom of God. So you are now a conduit. You don't live your life to your own ends. You're not independent. You're part of a body. You're an ambassador for the king of the universe. And you are meant to be spent and poured out as a sacrificial offering, just like Christ does for his bride. Your life is for your neighbor. You are blessed to be a blessing. That's what this is all for. Just like Christ's life was for us, your life is for your neighbor. It's no longer independent. And so in that vein, one author, he put it like this. He said, the moment of the greatest intimacy with the Lord since we become his body is also that of the greatest solidarity with others. The moment of the greatest intimacy with the Lord since we become his body is also that of the greatest solidarity with others. I know I brought up Mother Teresa before, and she's this glowing example in, in many people's eyes. But she would say this prayer. Um, she would say this prayer every single day, and I'm, I'm going to read it for you in this book. She would say, Dearest Lord, may I see you today and every day in the person who is sick, and whilst nursing them, minister unto you. She, she prayed this every single day. Dearest Lord, may I see you today and every day in the person who is sick, and whilst nursing them, minister unto you. Mother Teresa ministered one-on-one -on -one to people. And in this book, Something Beautiful for God by Malcolm Muggeridge, a journalist, he asks her some questions and, and he says, you know, in the 20th century, we're all about collective solutions, these big ideas. And so he asks for her take and she says this. She says, I do not agree with the big way of doing things. To us, what matters is an individual. To get to love the person, we must come into close contact with them. If we wait till we get the numbers, then we'll be lost in the numbers. And we'll never be able to show that love and respect for the person. She says, I believe in person to person. Every person is Christ for me. And since there is only one Jesus, that person is the only person in the world for me at that moment. 
It's not about big ideas. It's about your life is for your neighbor. This is what Mother Teresa did. And, and so to embody this, in, in some way, Cheryl and I have started calling our house, we, we decided a little while ago, we, we call our house the embassy because it's a place where it's not our domain. We are on foreign soil representing another kingdom. And so we try to pray before we invite guests over who don't know the Lord. And we invite them into this space believing God that they will encounter his presence there. And so if you experience real access to God, if you've had that, then it's impossible not for it not to spill out onto other people. So let me tell you something very precious, that God has given everything he could possibly give to you. You know, someone could give you a bunch of money, a bunch of stuff, whatever. The most precious gift someone could give to you is their life. And God in Jesus has given his entire self to us. And when we accept this new identity into Christ's body, we are incorporated into him. We are also giving all of ourselves back to him. And when we do this well, the church witnesses to the world that there is another way to live. And we might ask ourselves, why do we have to witness to the world there's another way to live? There's a um, French philosopher and activist, Christian named Jacques Ellul, and he said this, the way of the world is suicide. The way of the world is suicide. What he meant by that was that suicide is taking yourself so seriously and you kill yourself for your own ends, for your own purposes. And you know, the full extent of independence is cutting off every other source of life. And because we we're made for relationship, we weren't made for independence. We were made for dependence and for surrender. And so in suicide, you have the ultimate expression of independence and autonomy. And you know, in this world right now, we live in this climate where there's a strong culture of independence, a strong culture of autonomy, a strong culture of rights. It's my right to do this. I have the right to do that, to kill an unborn child, to kill an elderly person. There, there's even talk about making all suicide assisted so it's safe and legal, and anyone who wants, by their own autonomy, can opt out of life. The church needs to show the world there's another way to live. Because we're all going to die. And you can die independent and autonomous in a kind of final death. Or the alternative way is through dependence and surrender, whereby you willingly, like Jesus, give up your life for the sake of someone else. And in that kind of death, it leads to an eternal life. So the full extent, and James says this, James 1.15 says, when sin is conceived and is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Ironic. So the, the Bible says this, the full extent of our autonomy and our dependence is death. The way of the world is suicide. The church needs to show the world there's another way to live. Your life is not your own. It's incorporated into a body where it's dependent and it's surrendered and it's for your neighbor. And so again, to, just to personalize this and to finish, like Mother Teresa, if we're to be the church, we must find our life's mission in the world and in the individual in the one person, in the neighbor. Just like Nigel. He allowed himself to be constantly distracted from the grand ideas to give to perish. And so he didn't complete his grand idea at the end of his life.
but he did help his neighbor. He did give himself to embody Christ in the world. And so, just to close, I want us to think of two questions. As a church, how do we embody Christ's presence in Nelson? And and even as an individual, and again, I, I, I want us to get our thinking around that I'm just an individual. You are someone who is a member of the body of Christ. That's what your new identity means. It's a, if we have a Trinitarian God and we are invited into that Trinity, it's all relational. You are not an island unto yourself. And so at an individual level and in your place of influence, how do you incarnate make real Christ to your neighbor. And so I invite you just to stand as we pray and and we'll have the response song. Father, we give ourselves to you again today, this Sunday, thanking you for your word and your plan of salvation that the moment We turned our backs on you. You were at work to bring us back to yourself. And thank you for your promises throughout all the Old Testament leading to Jesus who gives us access to you, our Father. May your Holy Spirit make us pliable and responsive to your work in our hearts, a work that we can't do on ourselves. Father, help us recognize our identity in the body of Christ and be used to be your presence in this world. We can't give up ourselves by ourselves. We, we don't have the resources to, to live the kind of life Jesus did, but Jesus does, and we're in him. I pray that this kind of, uh, this new identity that you've given us would be constantly on our hearts and on our minds. We pray that you would have your way and your will in this church, your way and your will in this city, your way and your will in each heart here. Lord, may we be further surrendered to you, growing up into our head who is Christ. And so, Father, we are not our own. We are yours help the world see that as we go forth as ambassadors of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.